quite a challenge to go through this great book. Uh, seldom do people read it. Seldom do people study it. But it's one of the great books of all the Bible. And we have looked at it item by item and line by line. And we're grateful and thankful for the opportunity that we've had to do that. And we look now at the last chapter. And then as I've made mention in the bulletin and just an announcement or two, we'll start looking at the book of Psalms. I have out there in the foyer a handout sheet which will get us started on the book of Psalms. And um, there are some questions on there. And then uh, we will each week add to that by means of questions and Psalms. And my intent is to group the Psalms in certain groups and categories. And we'll look at the Psalms in those categories and that. But there's a lot to be learned about Psalms first before we actually get into an actual textual study of one of the Psalms. And so... If you need one of the uh, handouts, Danny's got them back there. He'll, he'll pass them out to you if you need one on the book of Psalms. And there'll be others that will uh, come out. Then there's also some questions out there on uh, Job 42. Now, last time we were working over on this Leviathan thing, and we concluded that it was an alligator, hippopotamus, Tyrannosaurus rex, uh, Brontosaurus, and Godzilla. And... Uh, <laughs> that's where we were last time, and that's probably as good a guess as anybody else's what Leviathan is. It's a special Hebrew word, which means great sea creature, sea monster of some sort. And um, that's not the point as to identify the species. The point is God created it, and who are you, Job, to question me? I'm the one that created this great beast, Leviathan, that you cannot have anything to do with. You cannot handle. You cannot domesticate. Uh, you cannot um, uh, be involved with at all because if you pet that thing, you won't, you won't forget it. You'll always remember that is what he said in chapter 41. But the point is, it's like a little puppy dog to God. I mean, God created him and sustained him and created the world and the environment in which he lives. And so Job ought to realize from that, you're not in a position to question me or to second guess me. And so he says... Then Job answered the Lord and said, verse, chapter 42 and verse 2, I know that you can do all things. That's a pretty good point to make right there. And a pretty good uh, uh, passage to underline that God is omnipotent is the word that we use for that. He can do all things that are capable of being done. And there's nothing that God cannot do if it's capable of being done. He's not going to affirm a logical contradiction or... Some of these silly questions like, can he dig a hole so deep he can't get out of it and that sort of thing, simply are things that cannot be done. They're not subject for accomplishment, even of divine accomplishment. God can do all that can be done. And so he is, he is omnipotent in that regard. He's omniscient. He knows all that can be known. He's omnibenevolent. He has all the perfect love with regard to his creation, including man. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, that's another good verse to underline or mark. You cannot stymie, stop, or hinder the work of God. And so Job has come to realize that fact. And because of the discussion of the world and the created animals of the world and the different beings that God has created and cares for, now Job has got the point. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Well, Job is making that statement, but he's quoting a statement that God made earlier. And he's saying in that regard, he simply repeats the comment that God made, 
back, let's see if I can find it for us, back in chapter 38. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Well, that was um, God's question to Job. Now Job repeats the question in chapter 42 and verse uh, 2 and 3, and obviously no one can hide from God, no one can thwart the purpose of God, and so Job is repeating the very question that God posed to him initially. Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And we sort of began that last time at the end of our Bible class, but not really give serious consideration to it for lack of time. But now we begin to look at it more in its context, and we see how it really is showing us how great God actually is. Things too wonderful for me. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Uh, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What is Job saying now? Job is saying, I have a much deeper understanding of God than I ever had before. I have a much deeper spiritual understanding of who God really is. Now, he's not literally saying, my eye has actually seen you. What he is saying, though, is, I understand now. I understand more about God than I've ever understood before. I understand more about what? God's character. And part of the character that he's emphasized for us here is this matter of, how great God is, how powerful God is. And that was the point of the behemoth and the Leviathan. And so, uh, let's see. And uh, therefore, I retract. This translation uses the word retract. You may have another word there in verse 6. Uh, some may use the word reject or take back. And I repent in dust and ashes. So he sees God more clearly, and he says, I take back everything I said, which is a pretty smart move to make. Only this man is being very sincere about it. And I, what, repent in sackcloth and ashes, dust and ashes, he says right here. Dust and ashes, sackcloth and ashes, an old Hebrew um, phrase, idio, idiomatic phrase, which basically goes back to the idea of being undone and I am throwing dust in the air and throwing dust on myself which shows how I'm disfigured and how I'm so filled with grief which you can see but that's how I feel on the inside. I'm doing all this on the outside and you can see how I feel on the inside by this dust and this ashes and the sackcloth and that kind of thing. And that was an old uh, Semitic way of showing grief and how one is totally undone with regard to the circumstances. But now that's the thing for Job to do, repent. Now we got to talk about that a little bit. Okay, let's ask, repent of what? Now didn't Job maintain his innocence all the way through this whole discourse between the three friends and Elihu? Didn't he say, I'm innocent of this? They were get, telling him, you're guilty of sin. And Job said, oh, no, I'm not. You're guilty of sin, and that's why you're suffering. Well, I had not committed any sin. I certainly don't deserve anything like that. So now we see that Job is repenting. Repenting of what? I think he's saying, I repent of the way I handled this suffering. I repent of doubting God. I repent of 
the things that I said with regard to God, to challenge God, to question God. I repent of that. Now, God had made clear in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that Job was not guilty of these matters. Have you considered my servant Job what a great man he was? And he was a great man. But yet, through the throes of the suffering and that kind of thing, he said things he shouldn't have said. And he argued for things he should not have argued for. And was rather arrogant at times. And um, he was rather uh, 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 demanding of God at times. Yeah, demanding an audience with God. Want to go before court. If we can have a court hearing, then I will serve as my own defense and God will see how innocent I really am. And this happened more than once. I repented all that. I rep- and that was the thing to do. And that's all Job had to sincerely do was repent. Because that's what God wanted him to do, to repent of the actions and the things which he had said. Now, by verse 7, we're looking at the three friends. I don't see anything about the three friends repenting. Now, God has some pretty strong words with regard to the three friends in verse 7. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job... That the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, there's a couple of things that probably need to be brought to our attention. All he mentions is specifically one friend, Eliphaz. But Eliphaz, I guess, is representative of all the three. Another point is Elihu is not mentioned here. But the three friends are. And he said, now you didn't speak for me. You didn't say it like it should have been said. It wasn't said the way I wanted it said. And so he says, you are guilty. He says, my wrath is kindled against you. So Job has repented, which shows the spiritual maturity of Job. He said, I was wrong. Now that's what God has always asked us to do. Realize the fact that we're in error and we need to repent of our mistakes and repent of our sins. But I don't see anything about the three friends repenting. But God said, now I have an, I have an issue with you because what you said and how you argued is not from me. So let's think back just for a brief moment. What were they arguing, do we call? Now that's it. Now Job, these sins, these sufferings have come upon you because you're guilty of sin. And you must have been a terrible sinner. And they each had their own little angle on presenting that, you know. They would come at it from this angle and that one would come at it from that angle. But it all boils down basically. Sin is the cause of suffering. And God said, you didn't speak for me. Because that's not true. It is not true that sin is the cause of suffering. Sin can be. Sin can be the cause of suffering, but not always. Is all suffering the result of sin? No, it is not, and Job has proven that particular point. And so he says, now, you didn't speak like my servant Job has. Notice also, before I leave this little verse, how he uses the term, my servant Job. It comes up four times in this paragraph. Now, therefore, take yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, And go to my servant Job and offer up burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him 
so that I may not do what you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So I counted four times that he uses my servant Job. Job is in a right relationship with God where the three friends are not. And he tells the three friends, take what now? Seven bulls and seven rams. Well, that shows something of the seriousness of the sin that he's expecting that much sacrifice from the three friends, seven bulls and seven rams. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they would use that as a sin offering, wouldn't they? There are different types of offerings in the Old Testament. Sin offering was one of those, and they would use the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10, for that very purpose. But notice, now you brought up something interesting there, Scott, and the thing that Scott brought up is, how is Job enter, entering into this? They're told to offer seven bulls, seven rams. And then what's Job's job? All right, go to Job and he'll pray. Now, what is God using Job as? Well, he's using it as a priest. Job now is functioning as a priest for these other men. Job is functioning as a priest, which that's what a priest would do. Now, therefore, take yourselves seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you. My servant Job will function as priest because I will accept his prayer. I'm not going to accept your prayer. I'm going to accept his prayer. He will function as priest for you. And we're under a patriarchal dispensation. We don't do that today. We live under the New Testament law today. That Old Testament covenant was fulfilled by the cross of Christ, but now we live under a New Testament law. Who's the priest today? Who's the priest today? We're priests. Christians are priests. We're our own priests. But now you were telling me Christ is the high priest, and that's correct. We do have a high priest. We are our own priests, and Peter tells us that. I don't go to a priest. I'm my own priest as a Christian, and God accepts me as a Christian. He accepts my prayer. This is a better covenant than what they had under the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10, with Christ as the perfect high priest. So you're right on that. We are priests, and we go to Christ, our high priest. Now, I had a comment, a question. Yes, sir. Right. Under a patriarchal age, you speak directly to him. Yeah. Uh, he would go to Noah. He would go to these different ones. He would see. That's what patriarchy meant. God spoke to the fathers. God spoke to Abraham. Abraham, I want you to leave the localities. Abraham, I want you to offer your son Isaac. I'm going to show you the place over there at Mount Moriah. You go over there and offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice. God spoke directly to him, and that took place in patriarchy. We sometimes say patriarchal dispensation. Dispensation. Paul uses the word dispensation in Ephesians chapter 1. What he means by that is a long period of time in God's economy whereby God dealt with people this particular way. So that's where we are. We're in this long period of time 
in Old Testament patriarchy where God dealt directly, that's Marvin's question, to the head of that family. That's what it says in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Yeah. That's right. Hebrews chapter 1, God spoke in many different ways, but now he's spoken to us by Christ. Now, did you have a follow-up? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did take it seriously. Job took it seriously. Well, now, be careful. Let's stay with patriarchy. In mosaical dispensation, God spoke through the prophet. So you got a different dispensation. When you have kings, you got different dispensations. Samuel was a judge and a prophet. And you have all these, you have a king, which God didn't want them to have a king, but they chose a king, said, okay, give them a king, but this is what's going to be required of them. And then they had prophets. Saul offered sacrifice, and Samuel said, what in the world have you done? You're not supposed to do that. I'm the prophet. I'm supposed to offer sacrifice. God's not going to accept that sacrifice. First Samuel chapter 13. And so God takes the kingdom away from Saul. So it changed over time. Now, now this is the point he was making. Now God speaks to us through Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2. All right, what shall we make of that? Now, that's a good point. Uh, nothing is said about Elihu. So what shall we make of that? Now, the three friends were obviously wrong. He said, you guys go take seven bulls, seven rams, offer that a sacrifice, go to Job. Job's going to pray for you. I will accept his prayer. But what about Elihu and all of that? Was he not a friend? <laughs> yeah. Elihu was a friend. Yeah. He was a fourth one. I can only assume that God was agreeable or accepting of what Elihu said. Now, Elihu did not say exactly what these others said, but I can only assume, because Elihu is not mentioned here, that God was accepting of what Elihu had, had to say. And if you'll remember, Elihu was, was uh, I guess, scolding, is that the right word, or pointing out, or emphasizing maybe is a better word, to Job. It's not, you're not suffering because of what you did, but you're guilty of sin because you are suffering. And that was a different perspective, and that was true. All right, somebody else had a comment. Yes, ma'am. Is this Elphaz, is that the son of Esau? I don't know. Now, that's just something I can't answer. That's a good question. I just don't know. I just don't know. That's a good question. Somebody else? Anybody? I'm not quite through with this little section right here. Um, so Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad and the Shuhite and Zophar the Naomathite went and did as the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job verse 9. So we got this thing straightened out. This thing has uh, uh, been a situation whereby the three friends had rejected him. The suffering that you're uh, suffering is a result of the sins which you've committed, but now God has straightened that matter out. 
nothing is said about Satan here. See, this is a, this is a, if I can think about this with you for a minute, a serious challenge that Satan puts before God if he serves you. He serves you for what he can get out of it. And if that's the case, he's not worth saving and you're not worth worshiping. And God is saying, go ahead and test him. You're going to find out that he is worth saving and that I am worth worshiping. I am of value to worship. I'm the only one that is to be worshiped. So it's a serious test that is put before God by Satan. And it's a very clever test put before God by Satan. And Job has been faithful and sufficient, sufficiently faithful to be pleasing in the sight of God. And God has accepted him. In verse 9, Satan is wrong. Man is worth saving. Man is worth blessing. And God is worth worshiping. Who really deserves worship, our honor, and our praise. So it's a powerful, I don't know if I should use the word drama here. It's a powerful, it's poetry. It begins in prose, it ends with prose, and it's packed in the middle with a lot of Hebrew poetry. It begins, it, I don't know if drama is the right word. I don't want to use the wrong word and convey the wrong thought, but it's a challenging, difficult test that has been put forward. Now, much of our consideration and focus has been on poor Job and how he suffered, and that's true. Look at how poor Job was and how suffering he, the suffering that he went through. But it was a, the bigger picture is the test that's put before God himself by our adversary, Satan himself. And, of course, Job proved Satan false. One of the issues that we brought up on this particular matter is Job didn't know anything about this. If he had, it wouldn't have been a just or true test. It was a true test of his faith. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold, verse 10. He doubled everything. Now, I would say this happened over time. I don't think he just miraculously multiplied everything that he had and then doubled it. But I'd say it happened over time. He had more children. Then all the brothers and all the sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in the house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the ad adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And notice how it's put there. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold, verse 11. The interesting thing about this is they had turned their backs on Job early. They turned their backs on Job and they would not be supportive of Job. Even Job's wife turned her back on Job. Everybody left him. Uh, these brothers, these sisters, these friends that we're reading about in verse 11, they turned their back on Job. But now that Job has been restored, they've come back to honor him and respect him and comfort him. And Job is, is a, recipi a recipient of their blessings and he receives it. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. Now, I don't know if anything 
could replace the 10 children he lost initially. He had 10 funerals in one day initially. And the void that was in his heart with regard to those children that he truly loved. And as you read chapter one and chapter two, you see how much he loved those children. I don't know that anything really could fill the void of that, but now he receives, this is as best it can be, he receives 10 more children. And the interesting thing about it is, they're named, the daughters are named. Now I find that interesting. The daughters are named. He named, he had three daughters. He named the first Jemima, which um, in Hebrew means dove. Jonah is also is a word, Hebrew word that means dove. This word Jemima means dove. And the second one, Kazia, Kazia, which means perfume. And the third one, Karen Hapachuk. Now, I know you think that's silly, but that's how it's going to be pronounced in Hebrew. Karin Hapachuk. And um, basically, that means a horn or a Karin is a horn. And it means a horn. You see that little hyphen right there? That is a certain grammatical function in Hebrew, joining these two words together. A horn of I ointment, eye paint, eye makeup uh, is basically what the Hebrew word is getting at here. And it's emphasizing the beauty of these three daughters. He's had three beautiful daughters here. In all the land, no woman, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And so the names that are being given are names that emphasize the physical beauty of these particular women. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. They, got, they received inheritance as well, you see. After this, Job lived 140 years. And saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. A full, full life. And Job died. An old man and full of days. All right, let's put our thinking caps on here. Now, the first thing, what, what are you thinking right now? What question have you got about Job right now? Oh, yes, totally, yes. It had to. He lived 140 years after, his, uh, after this situation. But you know what's on my mind? And I thought it would be on your mind. How old was he when he died? Okay, now, he was 140 years. After this, Job lived 140 more years. Okay, how old was the guy when he died? Anybody got any ideas on that one? Yeah. He had grown children. I would say he's probably close to 200 years old when he died. I don't know that. Yeah. Exactly. Or that could be. It could be as high as 240. I'm guessing 200. Anybody more than 200 going once? Going twice? 
Ma'am. I think the first set of kids that he had, yes. they found favor in God's eyes. Yes, yes. So when he lost them, mm -hmm. he, he knew that they had done what God expected them to do. Yes. And so when he had these others, he had no, he had no regrets because he knew he had no I think there's some comfort to be had in that. I think there's comfort to be had because they were faithful in their worship of God. And it tells us of their sacrifices and that he actually would sacrifice for them just in case one of them would miss a sacrifice or worship. And so I have no question about the faithfulness of his children. Yes, sir. That I don't know. That I don't know. I doubt it. I doubt if he ever really knew the circumstances behind it. By the time you get to chapter 42, he said, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and I'm not going to say anything else, which is probably good advice for any of us. But at any rate, uh, he probably didn't. Now, as to the age, I can only guess. I would say upward around 200 years of age. I would guess him 70 when all this took place. I'm guessing. I don't know. But he's going to have to be around anywhere from 60, 70 years old. Keep in mind, they lived a lot longer in ancient times in that day. So he, uh, for him to live 140 years after this and seeing four generations of his family, um, he probably, uh, he has brothers, he has sisters, um, and family and friends. He, I'm guessing 200 years old. I don't know. Yes, sir. Daniel. Well, that's a good point. See, I agree with him. I agree with him. I think that's a good point. If he doubled everything that he had, why not double his age? Which would mean that he was around 70 when this happened. So he doubles his age 140. I don't know. That makes sense. Yeah. So I... I now we're speculating, of course. I mean, it's not, well, I guess so. When we get up there, we'll ask you, how old were you when you died? We, we were talking about that back there in Bible class. I'd like to know. But at any rate, I guess we'll never know. Comment or question? I got some points here on Job I wanted to bring up. Um, one of the things that I've learned about Job, and this is not my first um, go around on Job. I've been around on Job several times. But one of the things that it certainly helped me, the book of Job has helped me, is what is the motive behind our worship? Uh, that has to come up. Why was Job worshiping you, God? This was Satan's quest. He worships you for what he can get out of it. And Satan was trying to say, You've got Job bought off, and I have to ask myself the question, you know, what is the motive behind my worship? I, that certainly is something that I should give serious consideration to. Um, is it to get a bargain with God? Am I worshiping God so I can cut a deal with God? Uh, that would be kind of Satan's idea behind it. But my motive has got to be more pure. My motive has got to be sincere. I've got to worship God 
because of who he is and what he is, that he's worthy of it. And one of the things I think we'd have to learn from the book of Job, and one thing that Job surely learned was this lesson on humility. He was humbled by the experience that he went through. And by the time you get to the first part of chapter 42, he said, I said things I should have never said. You can do all things. Your will cannot be thwarted, whatever your will is. And it really should be a humbling experience for ourselves. Now, personally, I don't want to have to go through that in order to learn that lesson. What I personally would rather do is read about him going through it and learn that lesson on my own. When I started teaching school years ago, a uh, father came in to talk to me about his son. He said, now, Mr. Laws, you know, my kid gets out of line at times I know what you should do is just spank the guy next to him and my kid will get the point. You don't have to spank my kid. If you spank the student next to him, my kid will get the point. I said, well, thank you for that very much. Uh, I'm like that kid. I want to get the point. I want to get, the, I don't want to have to go through the spanking. I want to get the point. Now, the problem of that is we'll all probably go through it as a means of suffering, as a means of disciplining, as a means of uh, spiritually growing and maturing, we're going to go through that. And it could very well be that we have to go through a valley of suffering like that before we can reach the mountain peak of spirituality on the other side. We're going to have to go down through that uh, for us to experience the humbling and the chastening of the Lord, which the Lord really does want me to have and what I'm capable of having. And then one of the things that I've seen out of this, and as I said, I was reflecting on this, I've been thinking about it for several weeks, is the deeper insight that I get about God. Now, we've mentioned that before. Um, when, you, when you study the book of Job, you're getting a deeper understanding of the true nature of God. Just look at what we went through in 42. Uh, you can do everything. Um, and then God says to Satan, you can do what you but you will not take his life. And then the sovereignty of God, uh, that God can do all that can be done and knows all that can be known and that God's will will be done and nothing can come in place of that. And one of the points that keeps coming up through the course of our studies, and I'll not take the time to look up the specific verses, is that God doesn't go to somebody and ask for advice. What am I talking about? A deeper understanding of the divine nature of God himself. God doesn't get advice from anybody. God doesn't take permission or get permission from anyone. God does not go to somebody else or anything else in order to decide what to do. This is totally different from the pagan gods of the Greco-Roman world, totally different from anything else that we read about in world history with regard to man and his worship of these false gods. God is the supreme being and does not need, take, get permission, advice, or encouragement from anybody anywhere. And I think that's one of the big things that you learn about the book of Job. A study of the divine nature of God is a lifelong study to begin with. And one of the great books of the Bible to help me with that is the book of Job. This is one thing that really leaps from the page here. Why study the book of Job? It helps me trust God. It puts stronger conviction and faith in my heart about God. 
that I really need God. I really cannot live without God. I can't. Now, we as human beings, we have our health, we have our life, we have our families, children, grandchildren, all that sort of thing. And we sort of think we're going to live forever because we got everything going our way. But that's not the case. It's only because of God's blessings that we have these wonderful blessings and these wonderful aspects of life. And, and one of the things that I truly learned about the book of Job is to learn to trust him and to grow in faith in God and have confidence in God. And the Bible is filled with this particular point, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I mean, all through the pages of the Bible, you're going to have passages which are saying, put your confidence in God. Put your trust in God. The whole book of Isaiah is about that. The whole book of Isaiah is about the idea, don't go to Egypt, put your trust in God. Don't go to Egypt for help, put your trust in God. And this is one of the great books of the Bible that emphasizes that point for me, trust in God. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, no. No, well, absolutely. We're free to have opinions. And that's right. I think that's one of the important points, one of the important points that we learn from the book of Job, that we're not in a position to question God. Yeah. Right. That's right. And what you need to do, and I need to do, is when I do what God says, have confidence in that. Um, God says, I will forgive you if you repent. If you will be baptized, I will forgive you. Have confidence in what God says. That's trust. And some people never get to the point where they can forgive themselves. I suppose they think God forgives them. But I don't know that they ever get to the point where they forgive themselves. If God forgives you, forget it. Let me ask you this question. How many times have I got to pray? Here's a sin. Here's a problem. How many times have I got to pray to God for forgiveness about that sin? One time. Out of sincere, penitent heart. I pray one time God forgives as a child of God, I need to repent and be baptized in order to have that blessing and that benefit. We understand that. We understand about the importance of the blood of Christ, Romans chapter 6. But that blood continually cleanses and cleanses, 1 John chapter 1. And i got to put faith in that and confidence in that. If God said that, then it's true. If God said, I will forgive. And I'm saying this book of Job helps me learn that. It helps me learn to put my trust and confidence in God. God never rejected Job. Never. Job was always turning toward God for help. Job didn't understand. But at the same time, now he grows in a deeper understanding and trust in God. Danny. Right. He puts his issues to rest, and sometimes we kind of still debate things, but God still has the last word. Yeah. 
Well, uh, Danny's bringing up a good point here. God has the last word. The way this book is structured, God's word came in at the last, and it was the final word. And now Job went through all of this exercise, and so did the three friends, including Elihu, but it was God who had the final word. And that's a good point to remember. Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 They didn't hesitate on that, did they? And isn't that interesting there? Now, Gail raised a good point here. God forgave Job, but Job forgave the three friends. Because now they come to Job with the bulls and the goats to be sacrificed and there to pray to God through Job. Job's going to do the prayer for him. God forgave Job, but Job forgave the three friends. And there was some real tension with regard to the matter as the discussion and the dialogue would carry itself along. Trust is a great thing from this book. And uh, uh, in keeping with the uh, technology of the day, I broke it. Can somebody flip it? You know, one thing that never ceases to work is the bells. They always work. Uh, what is the motive behind our worship? Deeper insight, uh, trust in God, and it is futile to criticize God. And that's the point that we have made already, but I think it bears some careful consideration. Now, this is where the atheist makes his mistake. He's criticizing God. And this is what the atheist is doing. This is the sin of the atheist. Uh, it's not only futile. Go ahead and flip the, the uh, flip it again. There. Accusing God of wrong is sin. I think that's one of the um, uh, explicit lessons that we learn from this book. It's wrong to criticize God. And it is sinful to say, God, you were wrong. And that, of course, is what the atheist does. Flip it again. Live in the awareness of God's blessings. Now, I think that's a good point. Um, as I was reflecting over this book and our study and our journey through the book of Job, I was thinking about, you know, what is that old song? Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Live in, a, in the awareness that God has really blessed us. I mean, it is amazing the blessings that we have from God's hand. I mean, if you just start considering that matter. And we are people amazingly blessed. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Now, Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians. His abundant goodness, his abundant graciousness, and the word that he uses for abundance, it's in Ephesians chapter 1, is a word which means it cannot be measured. It is an abundant graciousness and abundant blessings that God has given and he uses this particular word a number of times. Yes, sir. It's been said, I've heard been said and everything, that we are kind of many blessings, but not our bruises. Not our bruises, yeah. And maybe that's good advice, to count the blessings, but not focus on the bruising. We probably focus more on the bruisings than we should, and that we ought to focus more on the blessings, and we truly have them. Confide more in God. Thank you for that. Um, it is a book that is really telling me 
put my confidence in God and learn to trust him. Go ahead and give us the next one so that we can make it all the way through. God is totally free to do his will. And uh, I think that's all the points that I put up there for tonight. And I had no idea whether I'd get to this, this far or not. And, you know, you guys can tune up this thing later. But um, I think those are some important lessons that we can truly learn from the book of Job. Now, those are the ones I had in mind. Uh, what lessons do you have in mind that might be emphasized? Yes, sir. Yeah. 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 And and I would as I would assume so when he repents, I would say yes to that. But you got a good point going there, and that is, you know, he needs to forgive himself. And that is something that sometimes is hard for us to do, to forgive ourselves. God has forgiven us long before we sometimes forgive ourselves, and we need to do the same thing in that regard. Yes, ma'am. He really is, yeah. His character. Yes, yeah. Mm. Well, I think you have a good point there. If someone wants to know, they can learn. If someone wants to know, this is a good book to work their way through. Now, I admit, and I've said this more than once, it's not the easiest book to study in the Bible, but we can learn it. We can understand it. And if you want to learn about God, know about God, this is a good place to go to to learn about God. And so I think that's a very good point. Somebody else. What other lesson? Yes, sir, Daniel. Take away that humans are ignorant. You know, we often think that we're intellectually superior and smart. But uh, in chapter 38, when God starts to question Job, he doesn't ask him questions about history or science or math. It's basic questions about nature. Yeah. And Job yeah. can't even answer those. That's right. It's a reminder of how simple we really are. Yeah. Well, I think Daniel's got a good point going there, and that is it really humbles us to understand how great God is and how finite we are. And sometimes we forget that very point. And those questions, as we began to get into that section of the book of Job, all the questions that God was asking Job, uh, we couldn't answer them. Where were you when I did this? And where were you when I did that? Well, we couldn't answer that. We weren't, but God was, which shows his greatness in our finite nature. Or the Son of Man. That I, yeah, exactly. Uh, the book of Psalms brings that up, Psalm 19. And so anyway, uh, the book of Psalms and various passages emphasize how finite, how limited, how temporary we really are compared to God's divine infin infiniteness. Now the thing about it is we can live with God forever and ever. That's the wonderful thing. It shows God's love that we have that privilege and opportunity based on his grace and our faith. All right, somebody else. I've enjoyed our discussion. Yes, sir. We can't make demands on God. That's right. We can't tell God what to do. I think that, I think uh, you've got a good point going there. We cannot make demands and tell God, you got to do this and that kind of thing. We're not in a position to do that, are we? All right. I've enjoyed our discussion. I've enjoyed the study of the book. We will begin next Wednesday night, Lord willing, the book of Psalms. I have a handout for you out there. I will continue to give to you 
step-by-step information that will help you handle the Psalms better. And in English, poetry has meter and rhyme. But in Hebrew poetry, it has rhyme, rhyming concepts. And I'll explain that a little later. When I was in elementary school, the teacher asked us to bring a poem to school. So I made up my own poem. And it was, I had a little pig. I fed him on jelly. He crawled through the fence and busted his belly. What's the matter? I didn't say I was William Shakespeare. I said I was a kid. I was a kid's poem. That's what I did. Well, English poetry is that way. It has rhyme. Hebrew poetry does not. But concepts match up. Concepts rhyme. And we're going to look at the different concepts as to how they match up and how they rhyme. But it takes a step-by-step growth process in understanding the Psalms. Comment or question before we go? Anybody else? Let's be dismissed by having a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the day and its many blessings. We're so thankful for life and for health and all that you do for us. We're, we're thankful for your love, for the love of your Son, for the sacrifice of Jesus, making it possible for us to pray, to live for you, and go to be with you in heaven. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you for these good people who are assembled here tonight. Be with them. Protect us all, Heavenly Father. Give us safe travel home. Continue to bless us in your wonderful way. And Heavenly Father, we ask for forgiveness of our sins, and we have them. We pray for forgiveness, Heavenly Father. And pray that we, through strength of the scriptures, will overcome them and be more like Jesus, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.